Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. Hope you're all getting through the week well. Oh, winding it down, focusing on some self-care. Tons of joy and pleasure, and of course, lots and lots of rest. Got a great show planned for you. We're going to be talking a lot about monogamy. Yep. People uh, don't ask the right questions, don't quite understand it, and that kind of gets in the way of us having these healthy, long-term, sustainable relationships. But I wanted to open the show by talking about uh, the brain and social isolation. Yep, it's a hot topic right now, but uh, studies show over and over that social isolation and loneliness have a negative impact a negative impact on the functioning of the brain. Now we know relational health is our mental health and a way to really assess how mentally healthy you are is to look at the quality and health of the relationships you're in. What kind of person are you and all the different relationships you show up in and vice versa. But we know more importantly that one of the most toxic things psychologically is isolation. Isolation absolutely will always be. But what impact does it have on the brain? Well, a lot of new studies are showing that it has a massive impact. And we're not just talking about things like memory, right? So we need to be prioritizing that. And we've talked about that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, staying connected, reaching out, using things like FaceTime so you can actually get some eye contact, leaving your house and going out in the world so you can just see other human beings moving around in the world, right? And um, we need to prioritize that. We can't think that this isn't something that that is totally neutral. Researchers are actually going as far as to refer to the impacts neurologically of, you know, isolation as a silent epidemic. That's a big deal. That quarantining and social distancing have been great. We've needed that. It's helped decrease the, uh, you know, transmission and uh, positives of the virus spreading, but that there's adverse health effects. And that was always that double bind, right? We need to do something to prevent death that doesn't necessarily have a supportive, positive impact on our brain's functioning and our psyche. So let's look at this. This came out of the CDC. Social isolation not only increases the risk of psychiatric disorders, but can increase vulnerability to dementia by up to 50%. Check that out. Impacts on our physical health include decreased immune functioning, sleep disturbances, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, stroke, metabolic disorders, and is a risk factor for mortality in older populations. Digging deeper, we started to see the effect it has on brain structure and activity. It just keeps getting darker and darker. 
So a lot of hyperintellectual explanations, but basically what they say is the deprivation, right? Evokes a neural signature of social craving in a region that is similar in response to food cues when hungry. So basically what that means is that this isolation has created much like a food craving, social interaction craving, which is why we saw people breaking quarantine rules. Uh, it's born out of the impact of having quarantined, right? So it becomes like a feedback loop. The more we do what we need to do, the more those cravings and cues get stronger, thereby making it harder to not break the rules and push out and see people. And people are also starting to get burned out on it as well. So researchers are basically saying, look, it's about management. We can't completely just, you know, necessarily put our brain health before, you know, social responsibility and possibly preventing death. So what can we do? They recommend starting each day with a five minute gratitude practice, right? Fortifies emotional health and well-being, some positive thinking. Also fitness classes. They love the benefits of physical movement and also participation with community. So you see others, you actually kind of feel like you're part of something. Again, this isn't ideal. This is doing the best we can within the confines. Mindfulness and meditation, reading or listening to audiobooks. You know, again, it's good for our brain, can also make us feel connected. We're hearing someone else, we're building empathy. Love them recommending time in nature, or like I said, going outdoors, just seeing and being around other people, using Zoom and FaceTime, having dates and socializing that way. Um, and then of course, good old therapy, if nothing else works. And then finally, let's wrap up this segment on a study that's looking at how a lot of people are always obsessed about having the quote unquote perfect body and how a lot of people think that that's really an important part of getting love. Well, the studies show that that might be meaningful in the beginning for chemistry to pull two people together. But what really keeps a long-term relationship together is compatibility. And that has nothing to do with your body shape or size. It has to do with the personality styles and the mental health of the two people that come together and whether or not they're compatible socially, psychologically, and sexually. So chemistry matters. We need to have that initial desire, which will bring us together, right? That's what makes us reach out, hit on them, follow up, go on a date, do all the work. But meaningful long-term sustainability and happiness is more importantly rooted in the personality style and structure. And that's why I'm always saying we have to be working as hard on our mental health as we are on our bodies because we only need our bodies for the initial piece because that's usually the only time that's most called into play. But who we are as a person really dictates our mental health in terms of all the relationships we're in, but also specifically the person we're with before us. So, all right, coming up next, we're going to talk about narcissism. I know it's a buzzword. What does that mean, though, to be in a relationship with someone who's highly narcissistic? And then we'll be focusing on monogamy. What are the ways to run it better so it doesn't get toxic? And what are the pitfalls? Because a lot of people make a lot of assumptions and don't ask the right questions. And then, we'll, of course, we'll be closing out on some DMs. If you've got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And as always, you can check out past episodes of Loveline over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll on down, look for my face, click on it. I know, I had to practice that. And uh, all the episodes are there. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about narcissistic abuse. This is something that people are talking more about, thankfully, and you're gonna hear a lot about it. Uh, yes, this definitely ties into the Me Too movement. We talk about people like Harvey Weinstein and the uh, <laughs> deluge of other people being called out for their problematic behavior. Um, the plethora of people that are taking advantage of 
you know, those in positions of uh, lesser power under them. And that's why this is like a constellation of factors. Narcissistic abuse is generally done at the hands of people that are male, male identified. Uh, so there's toxic masculinity in there, there's patriarchy, there's sexism. And it's at its worst when someone's in a position of power. And in some relationships, especially hetero relationships, traditional dating and gender roles, unfortunately, usually give male, people that are male, the uh, position of power and people defer to them. And, you know, females in our culture are raised to be less assertive and vocal and that can be racialized and there's so many pieces in there. So we talk about narcissistic abuse. Yeah, we're generally talking about people that are male, male identified. Um, and again, the way we push back and dismantle that is getting rid of patriarchal notions. And we talk about things like equality and mutuality where depending, or, or, excuse me, where it doesn't matter what someone's gender or gender presentation is, everyone's given equal voice and equal power. And the male identified or the more butch person isn't given control. So we have to push back on a lot of normal cultural ideals to get away from narcissistic abuse. And narcissistic abuse is something that you might see prevalent in a lot of relationships you have. This can be a parent, this can be a friend, this can be a loved one, a sex partner. A narcissistic personality disorder um, is usually the identifier for the person who engages in narcissistic abuse, right? And narcissistic personality disorder is... Um, it's a complex situation, and usually it looks like someone who asserts power over others, doesn't really have empathy or care for them, the way they impact others. Um, they need a lot of attention, and what that means is they usually center their needs and their feelings first, where something might happen that is about you or happened to you, and somehow magically you're like, how did we get on the way it impacted them or how they feel about it? right? Where they're always saying my feelings, my needs, and everything's made about them. That is narcissism. That's narcissistic abuse. When they essentially victimize us from that position, right? They perpetrate sometimes from the victim stance, right? Where everything's somehow always about them, even when it doesn't involve them, or it should exclusively be about your feelings or your feelings at least first, right? So you tend to feel manipulated. You tend to feel controlled, right? And that can be done in a lot of ways where they control your emotions, they literally control your behavior, they control how you socialize, they control what you wear. These start to be forms of narcissistic abuse because the person making these demands and wanting this control, it's so that they feel safe, so that they feel comfortable, so that they feel important. Because in theory, in a healthy relationship, it shouldn't matter what you wear or who you are friends with or who you talk to. Because the healthy partner would say, I want what makes you happy. Healthy relationships are about freedom. They don't make our life harder. They don't make our life smaller. They don't make our life more oppressive, right? And it's okay to call this out. So keep in mind that narcissists, um, that abuse and narcissism is not always related. Not everyone who has a lot of narcissism abuses others from that position. So it doesn't automatically mean that they're gonna be abusive, right? But whether or not they can truly be labeled diagnostically as a narcissist, that doesn't mean that their behavior is okay. Abuse is never okay. There's never a reason that makes it okay right? Because we always have access to different choices. And it's really hard to get narcissistic people into therapy to change or be better because again, they usually make it about everyone else. They're never at fault. The other person's always at fault. They never apologize. They never take responsibility. They never take accountability. They never put your needs first. Those are the kinds of relationships we need to get out of. And we need to pick up on that early on. But the problem is narcissists are often very charming and sophisticated and they'll gaslight you. They're really good at making you think everything's wrong. And they usually, there's a cycle it's the cycle of abuse. They start off really loving and attentive. And that's what's confusing is people say, well, what changed? Well, in the beginning, they do what they needed to do. And they follow that pattern of really hooking you and pulling you in, right? And that's why you fall for them. 
And they use a term, you'll hear this a lot, called love bombing, where they seem very kind, they seem very loving, they seem very generous, they're gushy, they're affectionate, they give you gifts, they give you compliments. That's how they hook you. They love bomb you. They're flooding you with love. And that feels so good. That feels so good, especially to people that have historically been in relationships of like deprivation or avoidance, right? It hooks us. So it feels really overwhelming and intense. But then slowly, once they have you, they start asserting control and power, right? And that's what makes it very confusing is when they start to pull you away from friends and family members because they start putting boundaries and limits on you, right? They start maybe taking your finances and they start punishing you, right? You're always harming them. You're always letting them down and they punish you. They give you science treatment. They ignore you. Then you start to wonder is what's going on because it was so good in the beginning, right? But now subtly it starts to shift and change. And so you got to look for those patterns. And you know, the, the biggest thing is you end up maybe isolated. You end up, um, pulled away from everyone that's important and meaningful to you. You start to question, is it you or is it them? Because they've made you feel as though you're bad or you're wrong. But the biggest assessment I'll always give you is before, during, and after, and you can apply it to everything and everyone. How do you feel before? How do you feel during? And how do you feel after? How do you feel before? How do you feel before you're going to see them, engage them, or speak with them? Anxious, unsafe, then it's bad. How do you feel while with them, during? And then how do you feel after having seen them, spoken with them, or been with them? And the answer should be at least neutral, if not positive, but if every time before, during, and after you feel bad or unsafe or confused, you're with someone unhealthy or toxic and maybe even part of a narcissistically abusive relationship, right? And as you pull away, you might, you might not feel good, right? You have physical responses. I'm tired. I'm not sleeping. I'm anxious. That isn't a sign that you need to go back. That's part of breaking away and moving forward. Healthy people will let you set boundaries. Narcissists won't because again, they want everything about their comfort and their needs. And so healthy people, if you set a boundary, they'll be like, that bums me out. That disappoints me, but I know you need that. So, okay. A narcissistic person will never honor that. They'll make you think your boundaries are wrong or bad and they'll push back on them. And so what you need to do is maybe get into therapy, maybe just do your own self-assessment and get out, talk to friends, stay connected to your friends and family. They'll try to pull you apart. You start to set boundaries, see if they honor them. You rebuild your confidence. That's how we move away from that. We'll keep talking about, but it's important to kind of call out these things because they, they, they don't necessarily have to sneak up on us if we know what to look for. Uh, question night, as always, up on our Love Energy page. Coming up, uh, we're going to be signing some DMs in a couple minutes. Uh, if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, you can do so by heading over to wearechannelq.com. We'll be back, though. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and um, we're going to kind of close out the week by finalizing our week where we've been talking consistently about sleep, sleep hygiene, sleep health. Every night I've been touching upon this. It's something that comes up in almost every single session I'm doing clinically. Some level of what's going on around us and it impacting our sleep. People are looking at their relationship to food, others, the pandemic, their job, alcohol, drugs, and sleep is built in there. And as we've talked about before, Sleep is one of the number one things. If I had to offer one thing that can help improve every level of health in our lives, physically and psychologically, it's that, it's that, it's that important. Um, so we've been talking about how to get good sleep, but let's talk quickly about ways to fall back asleep if you wake up in the middle of the night. Now, some people that are moving away from drugs and alcohol are saying, well, it would often help me fall asleep, but it doesn't help me stay asleep. And that's right. That's what happens is once it filters out of your body or gets you to sleep, it doesn't necessarily keep you asleep or give you a high quality amount of sleep because it's not just 
the amount of sleep you get, it's also the quality of sleep. So what are things we can do if we wake up in the middle of the night? Well, the first thing is you're not supposed to battle it. That's gonna make it more intense. So it's okay to get up and say, I'm not sleeping well right now, I'm gonna go do something. Something that's not gonna maybe make me hyper aroused or activate me, so I can maybe go sit in the dark and read you know, with a little light. Maybe I'm gonna go watch a little television. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Maybe I'll go make some tea. Maybe I'll go for a little walk, but you don't wanna sit there and battle it. Another thing you do is deep breathing. Breathing is a really good way to regulate our nervous system. And if we're feeling hyperactivated because we can't sleep or maybe we have anxiety on our mind, we can do deep breathing to slow ourselves down. It's a really powerful tool for moments of anxiety in any time or space. Also, we talk a lot about journaling, writing down the things that are making you anxious, showing yourself, okay, I'll deal with that when I wake up in the morning. Let me just get it down on paper so I know it's dealt with. Or even maybe plugging it into a little bit of a planner, saying, look, I planned it out. I know I will be able to accomplish this. I will get this done. Because sometimes it feels we need like we need a little constructiveness around it. And so I love people having a notepad or paper by their bed or even in the notepad on their phone, and that's how they deal with things. There's also things like sleep meditations and muscle relaxation exercises. And there's a lot of apps that will walk you through that where we really release the tenseness in our body, right? And I know that that's not the easy, quick answer for everyone because everyone loves quick, easy answers, but that's not how life works. And so doing deep breathing or doing muscle relaxation exercises or writing down some of our thoughts, yeah, it takes a little bit of effort, but all the important, meaningful things in our lives always do. Don't be afraid of that, right? But we don't want to turn the inability to sleep into a battle, right? Um, another thing is clock watching, <laughs> right? Really checking in on what time it is. And oh my God, it's this late and I only have this much time to sleep. Stay away from all that. If your alarm clock is set, it'll wake you up when you need to get up. You don't need to be checking in on how much more time that feeds the anxiety. It's important not to get worked up about the sleep that won't help you fall back to sleep and it overstimulates you. And we're trying to actually downregulate, you know? So tracking that isn't going to help. It actually makes it more difficult, right? So you're not peaking and looking at that. Um, and again, like I said about the alcohol and things like that, be really thoughtful about what you might have been doing before sleep that helped you fall asleep easily, but isn't helping you stay asleep because alcohol leads to a lot of sleep disturbances and people don't realize that, right? Uh, because once it's metabolized, it actually turns into a form um, of a substance that becomes stimulating. You know, so if you drink too much, in about four hours it's converted and then you wake up. <laughs> and that's why people that drink a lot don't sleep very well. And also add to that, going to the bathroom a whole bunch. I'm one of those people where I had to cut out water because I was, I was getting up to go to the bathroom way too much. And that was one of the things that was kind of keeping me awake. And then of course we have to pay attention to technology use. I'm telling you, that's one of the number one things is not taking a break from that, you know? Um, putting down our technology long before we're gonna go to bed, even a ritual like drinking some tea, right? Things like that, but we can't just crash into bed. And that's what I think a lot of people try to do is they think, just going to work, work, work and crash into bed. And then I'm going to wonder why I'm not in the right state to sleep and get the best and, you know, most robust amount of sleep. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's like when you go to the gym, you need to warm up when you get there. You can't just go crashing into the gym, <laughs> just start throwing around weights. You're supposed to warm up. Same thing when you get to work. I hope you don't just like slam at your desk and turn on the laptop and, and start going. It's like ease in, you know what I mean? Get your coffee, sit down, turn on the computer. Like it's, it's really a conversation about transitions. In psychology, transitions are important. When we enter the home after being at work, we need to pay attention to how we transition in, how we transition back into our marriage and our family life, right? How we transition into the office, how we transition into sleep. It's part of like just this desire for speed where we don't pay attention, we don't slow down and say, what do I need to help me exit out of work mode and into being at home mode and family mode or partner mode or dad mode? 
What do I need to do to transition into the office and to be into the role I need to have here? Transition's important. Coming crashing in is really hard on our system. Sleep is the same way. Going to bed and waking up. A lot of people fall into bed and jump out of bed. It's not good. It's hard on our system, right? And so taking a little bit more time to honor these transitions is a really important part. I work with that on a lot of couples that come home from work. That the final way to transition out of work and transition back into family life. Maybe they drive around for a while. Maybe they come home and shower and change right away. That's what I do, you know? But we, we have to pay attention to that. All right, coming up next, we're gonna be sliding into those DMs and then we're gonna be spending the rest of the show talking about monogamy. Yes, important things to think about, important things to consider, and doing a lot of self-reflection as to why we're changing, uh, choosing the relational styles and structures that we choose. And if you wanna check out past episodes of Loveline, as always, you can go to wearechannelq.com, scroll down, look for my little face, click on it, bam, past episodes. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one asks, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Aaron. I have a twin brother, Adam. Recently found out that Adam is bi. I am straight. He didn't tell me. I found out on social media. Ah, yes. God bless social media where you can pretty much creep, deep dive, and find out whatever you want about anyone. Um, We are really close, or at least I thought so, and he didn't tell me. Should I talk to him about how that made me feel or should I just put my feelings aside and support him? We haven't talked in about a week because I don't know what to say. few things. I want you to do self-reflection first. When someone doesn't share something with us, I want us to first ask, are we safe enough to be approached? Have we said things problematically that might make them feel like they can't approach us? Yeah, if you've been spewing homophobic, transphobic stuff, he's not going to tell you anything. You aren't safe to be gone to. Let's assume you're not. Do you guys have a close, intimate relationship where he tells you personal things? If not, well, that's probably why, right? Are you someone where if you're uncomfortable, you make a big deal and make it about your feelings? If so, that might be why. But if you're saying, no, none of that's the case, well, yeah, I want, I want us to always, let me just start by saying this, always ask someone about whatever we're talking about. That's always the answer. Yeah, lovingly and supportively. Hey, Aaron, it's your brother Adam. <laughs> Wanted to reach out. You know, I, you know I follow you on social media and I happen to see you mention your bi. Congratulations, man. I'm really glad you're living your truth. I know it's really hard in our biphobic culture to do that. Um, you know, I want to fully support you. Uh, as your brother, I was a little surprised that you didn't feel as you could come tell me. Here's the important part of my scripting what you say. I, I would love to know what I'm doing that sometimes makes you maybe feel like you can't share things with me. You make it about you because it is about you because he didn't tell you. So it's about you and we own that. I'm wondering if I'm doing something that makes you feel like you can't talk to me about things like that. I'd love to know these things. I care about you and I support you. So you're both being supportive. You're not attacking, you're not blaming and you're owning. You're saying, what have I maybe done that's made you feel like you can't tell me these things? That's the verbiage, right? Um, and then you hear what he says and you say, thank you for telling me. You know, and you move forward supporting him. You move forward as an ally. Anytime someone says something biphobic or homophobic, no matter if your brother's around or not, it matters most when he's not. You say, I'm going to stop you. You do not talk that way around me. That's not okay. Go educate yourself. It's okay to be gay. It's okay to be bi. You know what I mean? If your brother's publicly, openly out, you can say, I have a brother that's bisexual. And so it's especially offensive. But even if I didn't, it's not okay right? And that's what I want you to know. You never know who's around you. The person themselves might be gay, bi, trans, or their loved one. And everything you're saying is letting them know whether you're the kind of safe person they can be around to talk about that or anything else. Because when we show up as very problematic and judgmental, well, that communicates that they can't tell us other things that sometimes are punchy or triggering. 
And again, we still live in a world where some people think sexual fluidity and bisexuality isn't real and that the person's really just gay and I'm so burnt out and tired on that. It's not true. It, you know, it's so funny what we will accept in the world, but that's not one of them. You know what I mean? All these bizarre, heinous things we accept, but that, nope, too far, too far. Everyone's got to be gay or they got to be straight. And it's like, what? Nothing in the world exists with two options only. A sexual orientation, there's hundreds upon hundreds of way to, ways to identify. That's why I tell everyone, hold these loosely. So many ways. People are phrase sexual, pansexual, demisexual. What do those words mean? We've talked about it. We'll talk about a more asexual, solosexual, fetish sexual. Our sexual orientation is bigger than just gender choice. For some people, the gender is not the relevant part of it at all. But yet we want to really drive it home and make it about that. And being bi does not mean 50-50. It can be 95-5. <laughs> right? So remember that. Just because you see someone dating a certain gender and consistently dates that gender, that doesn't mean that that is their orientation label. They might just not be meeting or interested in someone of the other gender, but it could still be there. Right? Bisexuality is not 50-50. It could be 80-20, 90-10, 50-50, 25-75, 99-1. So right? But it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe either. It's not about you at that point. It's about who they are and how they identify. You accept that and you say, I hear you. You know what I mean? Just like the pronoun use. It doesn't matter what you think or feel. If someone says, here's the pronouns, you say, got it. <laughs> got it. Because it's about you feeling respected and you feeling like your human rights are important. You know what I mean? All right, coming up next, we're going to keep talking about monogamy. So as to save y'all because of the ways we run our monogamous relationships are often toxic, sometimes even violent. So uh, we're going to keep talking about that and then closing out the show at some DMs. So if you've got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveland IG page in the stories. And as always, you can check out past episodes over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll on down, look for my face and click on it. But uh, monogamy is an important topic because I think the reason why a lot of relationships fail is uh, because the way that they are, their expectations and also the way they're running them. So stick around for that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, we are unpacking monogamy. Important topic. It's something that's not discussed ever. You know, when I travel in non-COVID times, and uh, which I do, I often... I'm part of a uh, mental health training program, the Sexual Health Alliance. It certifies uh, therapists, doctors, nurses, and in, in you know better understanding human sexuality, sexology, sex therapy. But more importantly, it's also a training program for sex educators or sex therapists that want to get certified and trained. So uh, Sexual Health Alliance, SHA. And basically, I get to go to, I think it's anywhere from, it's about nine cities. We do different cohorts in different cities. And um, <clears throat> we kind of run you through all the criteria so that you can get certified. My point, though, is that I always share a story about how, you know, general therapists, this is actually good for consumers to know, therapists are not trained in um sex therapy ever. And that's really shocking and disappointing because sex shows up in clinical offices no matter what they're you know coming in for. And uh, general therapists, <clears throat> whether they're an MFT, um, LPC, or a uh, LCSW, even a PhD, they are not trained in sex therapy. So, you know, the message, I guess, is if you want to work on sex or gender or sexuality, go see a certified sex therapist, not a sex addiction therapist. That is some other issue, uh, but a certified sex therapist. Now, my point, though, <laughs> the reason why I'm saying all this is that in general school for therapy and psychology, maybe you take a marital and couples therapy training program or a course, not always, which is, again, shocking. But they never talk about non-monogamy. They assume every couple's monogamous and they often assume every couple's hetero, which just isn't true. 
And the issue is, is that monogamy is not bad or wrong, but it's also not the right thing for everyone. And just like most often, if a couple comes in that is open or poly, the therapist and everyone wants to understand why they chose that, we should also be asking monogamous couples and also couples that are married, what made you decide to choose that? Because please don't assume that marriage is always a healthy thing. And please don't assume that monogamy is always a healthy thing. Some people's decisions to choose those are rooted in their anxiety and it's not rooted in health or even self-awareness. And so just like we want to know why people are poly or non-monogamous or open, we need to also be like, what made you choose monogamy? And really explore if that's the best option. Yes, we need to explore all the choices we make. Not every couple's hetero. Not every couple is just two people. And not every couple is meant to be monogamous. You know, everyone's on the continuum between the desire for relationship and pair bonding. And the other end of that continuum or spectrum is singledom and total freedom and autonomy. And when we get into a relationship, which end of that spectrum you are most confident and comfortable in really gets called into question. Some people do better in lower level intimacy. Uh, Some people do better in relationships that have less intimacy, less commitment, and less time together and closeness. That is not bad. It is okay to be someone who doesn't need to spend every waking moment with your partner. That is why some people are choosing to not live together, but that's a very extreme and dramatic example. Although you don't have to live with your partner, but my point being, some people say, I'll be monogamous, right? I'll live with them. I'll get married, but there'll be a day I want on my own. I don't need to necessarily connect with them all day throughout the day. Some people are saying, I don't need that much closeness. I'll wake up with you and give you a kiss. I'll go out and to go to the office and, you know, have a day and I'll see when I get home. That's as much closeness as I need. Other people would love to hear from you throughout the day. They'll give you a kiss when you wake up in the morning. They know they're going to come home and see that night because you're married and or you live together. But during the day, they still want to check in and say, how's your afternoon going? How are you? What have you been up to? That's someone who's closer to the other side of the continuum of more closeness and intimacy and commitment. Neither is right or wrong. And ideally, we find someone who's compatible. If your someone is a little bit more towards the more free, autonomous, less close, you date someone who's also there and then your needs are both met. You're fine going the whole day without talking. And the trouble shows up when you're on both different ends where you're like, all right, honey, I'll see you tonight. And the other person's like, what? You're not going to check in with me during the day. Where are you doing? What are you up to? And it's like, whoa, neither one of you is correct or right. And it even comes up in early dating where someone's like, they haven't texted me. I haven't heard from them in a day or two. It's like, well, because that's not their dating style. And dating is about figuring out compatibility. And can you ask them to text you more? Sure. But they have a right to say that's closer than I'd like to stay with someone right? There's no right or wrong. The words we should be using are compatibility. So if a friend says to me, I don't know what to do, you know, they're not getting back to me. I'd like to see them more. The question isn't, you know, whether or not they're interested, although that's relevant. It's usually, are you guys compatible? They don't need to talk to you every day. Can you tolerate being in a relationship and dating someone that doesn't need to talk to you every single day? Because they don't need to change to make you comfortable. They need, their job is to be themselves and your job is to be yourself and you need to see if it's compatible because the problem gets, gets bigger when we demand the other person change versus really using dating to figure out who they are and if that works for us because that will be consistent. <clears throat> Even if you can get them to see you more often or text you every day, what's gonna happen when you get married and they want a Saturday where they go off into the world on their own and they go for a hike on their own or with a friend or this or that? Are you then gonna also be upset that they're not, that you're not seeing and spending every weekend day with them. Like it becomes a compatibility issue. That's what a lot of couples arguments are over. They didn't honestly assess compatibility 
push forward anyway, battling out how often they're going to see each other, thinking being attracted is enough. And then they spend their entire marriage or later relationship battling over accepting their incompatibility. And that's not the case. That's not how it should go. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to come continue debunking, unpacking, and breaking myths around monogamy. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. And uh, tonight we're talking about monogamy. And in our last segment, we were just talking about the fact that all of us live somewhere on this continuum or spectrum where on one side, there's the people that want continual closeness, you know, a lot of intimacy, you know, date backpack style where they want to always know what you're up to, what you're doing, and they text you often throughout the day. And then there's people that are on the other side where they like a little more singleness, a little more autonomy, a little more freedom, and they can go a day or two without hearing from you. And that feels good to them. That's as much closeness as they need. It's not about whether or not they're interested. It's really about who they are and whether or not you're compatible. But people will start to frame it as they must not like me if they don't want to talk to me every day. Well, no, it's that they don't need as much closeness as you need. <clears throat> it's a difference of functioning or a difference of need and desire. Um, sometimes it could be a sign that they're just not interested in you, but uh, often it's just that they have a different dating relational style and neither one's right or correct. It's really about assessing compatibility. And the question for the individual struggling should be, can I accept who this person is and find peace in that? Or am I gonna always feel disrupted and upset and always blame and complain and want different? Now, I've always said, and I will continue to say, in a healthy relationship, yes, we are allowed to reflect back to our partner what it's like to be in a relationship with them, and we can lovingly make requests, but they have a right to say, yeah, that doesn't feel okay to me, or maybe they'll say that's fine. You know, early on in my um, current relationship, I said to my partner, hey, I'd love to talk more often. And it wasn't a demand, it's a request, a request to see if we can find a common ground that makes sense. And I was told, yeah, we can, great. And forward we moved. But they had a right to say, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't do that actually. When I date, I date a little slower, I like a little more space. And then I'd have to ask myself, is that compatible for me? Is that uh, tolerable for me? Because that's really what the word is, is it tolerable? And we have to honestly assess that. Is that something that we can tolerate? Or is our stuff gonna get in the way and become too much? Because some people choose monogamy from their anxiety because they're threatened, because they're anxious with any distance or space. And they use these concepts like marriage and monogamy or living together to make them feel safe. But <clears throat> the problem is it doesn't work because labels and structures aren't gonna make us trust or feel safe if we inherently don't. Because the, the point is that the health of the individuals in a relationship, right? The two people and their health is what determines the health of the relationship. It's the people, not its style, not its rules, not its boundaries. But people will do the opposite. When they don't trust themselves or their partner, or they don't do the work on calming themselves down and learning to let go and trust, they start to apply rules and regulations. Well, I don't want you seeing anyone without me. I don't want you talking to your ex anymore. I don't want you blah, blah, blah. I want to be monogamous. I want to live together. I want to go through your phone. And it's like all of that is an attempt to bypass doing the work you need to do on yourself, right? And it's an attempt to feel safe, but none of those things will do that. The structure isn't what's going to make you feel safe. You have to work on safety with someone who's worthy of trust, <clears throat> right? Because again, the caveat's always, if you don't trust this person and they're not worthy of it, don't try to date them or be with them, leave. I see far too many people with someone who they don't trust and instead of dealing with that, they try to do all these other gymnastics of labels and moving things and going through their phone, that doesn't help. And so <clears throat> remember that, is the monogamy or marriage 
or whatever, a choice from your desire for closeness or is it born out of your fear and anxiety and attempting to just feel safe because it will never give you that. So the first thing you have to think about, because this is what I really want to break down, what do we need to think about when we're choosing our relational style? Because remember, there's no right style. It's really looking at who am I, who are they, and what do they, and what do we need? Because we do want to be sex positive, but that monogamy can be sex positive. There's nothing wrong with monogamy. It's just there's toxic monogamy, which means there's toxic ways that we tend to try to choose and live monogamously, right? And we see those as norms in our culture. When you hear people saying things like, you're not allowed to talk to anyone of the gender you're attracted to. Like if you're a straight girl, you can't have any male friends. That's a form of toxic monogamy. Because if you're dating someone you trust with good boundaries, they can be friends with literally anyone. And so you have to really get honest with what is this anxiety about, right? So the first step is always knowing yourself. You need to be self-reflective, right? And you have to ask yourself, why am I trying to choose the relational style I'm choosing? Is it from a desire for closeness and intimacy? Or is it a desire for control? I want to control them because I'm anxious. Because then you have to work on your controlling nature, your anxious personality style, because that will still show up even if monogamous. That's the point. We have to learn about who we are because all styles, all of them, marriage, monogamy, polyamory, openness, they all have benefits, but they all also have deficits, all of them. And it's important to understand why you're wanting what you're wanting, but also what are the expectations you think that this marriage or monogamy or whatever you're choosing, openness or poly, what is it you think that it will give you, right? You have to be conscious because again, restrictions don't promise trust or love. They don't. They don't promise safety. It's about the people in that relationship. That's what allows that, not the style. Also, don't assume. I can't tell you how many people I work with or even people I know in my own life who automatically assume that anyone they're talking to is, first off, they're assuming they're single. You can't assume someone that you met on an app or you've started dating is single when you met them. They might be poly, they might be open, they might be looking for something casual. Don't assume they're single. Also, don't assume that you that they'll want monogamy. Also, don't assume that you have it. I can't tell you how many couples, big, well, we've been talking for a few months now. It's like, oh my God, don't assume monogamy unless you both have chosen and agreed to that. Because until that discussion happens, they have a right to be talking and dating other people or sleeping with other people 100%. And that's not a misleading or manipulation. They've never said otherwise. They've never committed to something otherwise. If you want to be monogamous, you need to say that. Hey, are you open to monogamy? And then you got to talk about what monogamy means. Everyone has a different definition. Oh, yes, they do. What falls under that definition? 100% you got to talk about that, especially with technology use now. There's some people that are like, yeah, we're monogamous. I don't meet up and have sex with other people, but I flirt. I do photo exchange. And for some people, they're like, yeah, that's fine. Do it. Who cares? And other people are like, no, that would make me uncomfortable. So you have to not assume anything. So unless you've requested and you have both committed to monogamy, don't assume you're in a monogamous relationship. And then you got to also talk about what that means. So many people say things like, oh, well, they know what that means. Oh my God. Well, then you cannot hold them accountable to them doing something that doesn't fall into your definition because don't assume there's a shared definition. Because a lot of people will use length of time together or the amount of intimacy or closeness that they have to have that expectation or assumption. Conversation is 100% mandatory. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about monogamy. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and we're continuing our discussion about monogamy. Talking about how you cannot assume it, right? You cannot assume it. It doesn't matter how close you are, how much time you spend together. You can't assume you're monogamous. You have to both agree to it and ask for it. And then you also have to talk about what that definition even means to you. 
And we started by also processing that you need to ask yourself, why is it that you're choosing what you're choosing? Because if it's that you don't trust this person, deal with the fact that you're with someone you don't trust. Because all these different labels and styles and structures won't inherently promise that you'll be able to feel safe and trust them, right? That's not the reason why we should do them. Also, <clears throat> when we're moving into this, we have to explore your relationship's expectations. Because just like monogamy cannot be assumed, right, or expected, neither can your definitions or expectations of it. So again, what are the boundaries? What are the boundaries that you're requesting? But also why? Again, we wanna be psychological about this. You, you, we do have a right to say, and why, right? You could say to them, this is how I define monogamy, and this is the reason why. Use it as an opportunity, right? Because this is where relationships get to be beautifully transformative and help us learn about ourselves and our partner. Use it as a chance to build deeper intimacy and to learn about yourself and to learn about them. Because that's what I love about relationships. It holds up a mirror. It lets us know where our wounds are and our work is, where we need to get stronger, what we need to resolve or heal, right? Because all parties' needs are legitimate. Your definition, whoever has the tighter, most restrictive definition of monogamy isn't correct. And that doesn't always mean that that's the one that should get honored. Sometimes people's definitions are too, too restricting and they become oppressive. And the other person has the right to say, I can't honor all of that. I'm gonna still be friends with my, you know, whatever it is, if it's a straight male, he's allowed to say, I'm still gonna be friends with my female friends. I'm still gonna maintain my relationship that I've had for many years with my ex of a long time ago. People have a right to say, no, I can't honor your definition. Because in a relationship, it's about everyone has power and say over what happens. And no one's definition or needs are more legitimate. You have a right to say, I hear what you're asking for, I understand why you're asking for it, but that's not healthy for me because my mental health matters and that's too restrictive or that's too oppressive or that shrinks my life down too much. Because as we get in a relationship with someone, our life shouldn't get smaller, it should get bigger. Someone else came in, the world should get bigger for us. It shouldn't be that we're removed from our social life or the things we like to do, right? There's no right way. And dating, marriage and relationships and monogamy are about compatibility. Do we have similar values, needs and interests? And if not, we're not meant to be in a monogamous relationship then. And that's unfortunate. Just because you like spending time with them, just because the sex is good, just because you're attracted to them doesn't mean you're both compatible, unfortunately. Because relationships take a little bit of work, but they shouldn't be exhausting. They shouldn't take that much work. If it's a lot of work and you're always fighting, it's a sign you're not compatible. And our definitions and needs around monogamy have to be compatible. Because the whole purpose of monogamy is not to make someone's life harder. And so it should be done under the guise of what everyone needs and what people feel comfortable with. It's not supposed to be a restriction right? That's not its purpose, right? Um, and sexual compatibility matters. Please don't talk about monogamy until you've been sexual with this person because monogamy implies you're the only person I'm having sex with in a lot of people's definitions. And so your limits are my limits. And so we need to make sure we've explored, are we sexually compatible? Because um, monogamy should only be for people that are sexually compatible and it takes time to explore that. You can't ask for monogamy, but then create celibacy by saying you can only have sex with me and I'm also not gonna to wanna to have sex with you, which is why we have to say, or I'm sorry, we have to explore, do we like to have the same kinds and amount of sex? It's the kind of sex you desire, how often you like sex, how much intimacy you want during it. You should explore that before you ever talk about monogamy and or marriage, 100%. Having sex is part of dating, it's part of courtship. It's a mess to make any serious decisions prior to exploring that. Also, you gotta keep talking about it and checking in. I want all relationships to do that. But you have to say like, hey, how's this been? At least every year. I'd love it every couple months. How's this relationship been going? What do we wanna do more of? What do we wanna do less of? How's our definition of monogamy be working? How's our sex life? Are we having enough of it in the ways you like? Do we need to change our definition, right? We have to have those check-ins. And you wanna listen honestly, calmly, 
right? You might not always hear what you want to hear, but it's important to learn where your partner and you are at so you can make necessary needed changes before things get too bad or wrong or, you know, resentful. And this is one that not everyone likes to hear, but you can renegotiate terms at any time. You're allowed to say, I know I said I would do this, but it's through the course of our relationship that I realize I can no longer honor that. We need to talk about changing some of these boundaries. You're allowed to be flexible in your requests and asking for the style that works for you. Change is not always a bad thing, right? But again, you're allowed to renegotiate. I know early on we chose that, you know, the decision to blah, blah, blah. We were going to be monogamous in these ways, but that's not working for me anymore. And it's not okay to say, but in the beginning you promised. We shouldn't be promising forever. The most honest answer psychologically would be right now, based on who I am and who you are and where our relationship's at, that sounds great to me. And if and when that changes, I'll let you know. Because I don't know where we're going to go, how we're going to change, how we're going to evolve. And our needs might become different. But right now, I can commit to that. But people shouldn't be making these long-term declarations where, yes, I will always honor this, always honor that. No way. Even marriage. The most honored marital vow would be, I love you. I commit to you here and now. And if and when that changes, I'll let you know and we'll talk about it. (laughs) But no one can promise forever. No one can promise that for decade after decade that we'll always be compatible and our needs won't change. It's a lie. And finally, we'll close out with this. Monogamy is hard. It's hard. It's not easy for everyone. Not everyone should choose it. Some people should realize it doesn't work for me. It's too difficult. I fail at it too often and it's not right for me. But if you're struggling, understand it's a struggle. Most people fail. Statistically, 60 to 70% of people fail at monogamy. It's not right for everyone. It doesn't work for most people. We need to run our relationships healthier. That's part of the problem. The way we run them aren't healthy and that's why we often aren't able to honor it. It's also just not right for everyone. It's okay to honor that, that you don't do it, that it doesn't work for you or that you need the definition to be a little looser. It's all about your mental health. All right, coming up next, we're going to be closing out with some DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I've recently commented on an Instagram post, and I noticed myself scrolling the comments to pick fights with people I don't agree with. <laughs> Made me sad because I'm not the type of person, but I feel like I'm so angry now. Is this happening to anyone else? Ah, yes. It's a question about emotional regulation and also uh, Instagram mental health. I'd say this, if you are feeling anxious, triggered or angry or, or depressed or whatever it is as a result of being on social media, pause, pause. And you, you're, you got burnout, you need a break, you're feeling triggered, you're overwhelmed, or you're acting stuff out and that is not what social media is for. It's really not, it's for connections, for community building, period, end of story first. Number two, it's got a lot of other things. It's great for education, activism, meeting people, but it's not for you to use as an outlet to act your stuff out. If you don't like people's comments, unless they're saying something that's not just, an in, if it's an injustice, right? Not a just, you know, it's not just, it's an injustice, then it's okay for you to maybe step and say, hey, let me just give you a little education. But even then, you don't need to attack. But if it's just something that annoys you or bothers you, stay quiet. You don't need to comment. I say this even about my posts. Unless there's something I'm missing and I'd love for you to call me in, which means you can slide in my DMs and say, hey, Dr. Chris, I saw what you posted. I wanted to let you know why I think that maybe there's something, you know, that's not so just about what you said. Call me in, share it privately. You don't need to put on blast. Number two, if it's something that annoys you or bothers you, keep scrolling. Don't need to know that. I don't, a lot of people don't either. It's not for you then, you know, but there's a lot of other people. If they're leaving comments that it meant something to them, let them be there. But, you know, comments and post sections are not for you to just vomit your anger. 
Keep it to yourself. Do some work. Regulate. But it sounds like maybe you're burnt out. I want people to put the phones down and stop acting out their stuff all over the place. Makes you look a little cuckoo. You know what I mean? Makes you look, makes you look a little dangerous and dysregulated. You don't need to be commenting on everything. Stay out of all that. That's not the point. Don't be trolling looking for a fight. That means you need a break or you're misusing it. You know what I mean? Again, if there's an injustice, always speak up. Get loud. Get dangerous. Call it out. But if you can access them one-on-one like you can on DMs, reach out privately. Unless it's a poster, then you can maybe comment there. But otherwise, if it's an annoying or lets you down or disappoint you, keep scrolling. We don't need to literally share every single thought as it happens. It's your mental health first, but it's also the mental health of the other people. For some people, it's a big step for them to put something on a page publicly or to divulge something and be vulnerable. And you don't want to shut that down for them. You don't know what they're going through, you know? But again, if you're feeling angry, work through that. Figure out what that's about. Take a break. That's what I see happening a lot on social media. They're using it for a container for a lot of unprocessed, unworked through material, and that's not what it's supposed to be for, you know? And it harms other people in the process. You don't know what it took for someone to present themselves like that or to share something. For some people, this is where they build community. They don't have access to others in other ways, you know? It's a safe space. It's supposed to be. So just be very thoughtful. I block people that pick fights needlessly. Block. I don't care. You're not safe to be on my page. Because I know for me, that's not what my social media is about. It's about education and activism and community building. And if someone's not here for that, gone. If anyone name calls or attacks, gone. Because that's also part of it. If you, if you don't agree with a thought, share your thought. But you don't name call. You don't, you don't attack. <laughs> that's a sign of you not being safe. And that's a sign of you not having maturity to engage in those conversations. And people like me just block it. I don't tie for that. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what the page is about. And I'm saying that because most likely the page you're on, picking fights, that's probably what they're thinking too. And it gets exhausting. It makes people stop posting and sharing. You know, because people want to nitpick every little thing. Don't do that. Don't be that person. It's hard enough to be on there sometimes as it is, you know. But sit back, take a break. That's why we keep talking more about dating app burnout and app use burnout, where people are going on angry or they're not checking in with themselves while on there, or checking in on themselves after getting off and setting boundaries with themselves, you know. These apps and technology isn't there to make your life harder or other people's lives harder. You know, it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> when the fun's gone... Got to take a break or we got to move on to something else. You know what I mean? So focus on your life. Go, go, go be fo- present in your life. Take a break. Everyone will thank you for it. All right, y'all, if you got a DM for us, put it in our Loveline IG page in the DMs. Want to listen to past episodes of Loveline? You can do so by going to wearechannelq.com. And on a Monday show, we're going to be talking about, ah, vaccinated, what to do now. That's right, because soon most of us will be. And we have to understand what's next physically, mentally, and socially. So we'll be talking about that. So join us. Please spend the rest of your night focusing on self-care, a little bit of joy and pleasure, and also as much rest as possible. There's a lot still going on, y'all. We got to be looking out for ourselves, but also looking out for those around us. So check in on someone. You know, I always say three people every day. Reach out to three people. Send them a message. Send them a picture. Call them. Let them know you're thinking about them. That's how we uh, think collectively. As always, y'all, thanks for hanging out, and you enjoy the rest of your night.